Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to the In Conversation With series, a series where I speak to notable figures in the realm of financial services. Listen as they share their personal journeys, thoughts on the industry, and advice for aspiring advisors. Hello and welcome to In Conversation With. I'm Kimberly Dondo and today I'm joined by Mike Coop, Chief Investment Officer for Morningstar Investment. Hi Mike and thank you for joining us today. Hi Kimberly, it's an absolute pleasure to join you. So um, if you could um, tell us a bit about how you got started in financial services yeah, gee, it's a long time ago now. Uh, so we're going back to uh, to New Zealand in 1987, uh, and I just finished a, a degree in economics, and I discovered I really enjoyed economics and just trying to make sense of what was happening in the world around. Um, so I managed to to to, to get a role uh, reviewing fund managers, actually. Um, and the the thing that I found most interesting really w- was just trying to see how different people invested. Uh, and what was successful, what was not successful, uh, as well as to trying to understand what was happening around us to the economy, whether you know, it was growth, inflation, interest rates, whatever it was, to try to make sense of it all. Yeah. Well, with that, um, I was just wondering with your wealth of knowledge and experience. Um, so we are almost halfway through 2023, but what is your outlook um, for the rest of this year? And where do you see the most promising investment opportunities yeah, that's a that's a great question, Kimberly. And um, one of the things that you learn over time is how often you can be surprised by <laughs> what ends up happening, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know the shocks that have happened almost every year have taken everyone by surprise. So it tends to mean that you t- somewhat focus on the longer term, more uh, reliable uh, factors or gravitational forces. In the short run for this year, there are some things that we can say about the environment for investors. The first is that actually markets offer much better value than they have for quite a while. And of course, you can get a better return on cash than you could uh, a few years ago. And so from that point of view, being invested, um, it's a better time to invest money. Uh, because you can get a better rate of return um, than you could a couple of years ago. So that's the first thing I think that's um, – and that's you know going to continue to be the case, um, certainly with cash. Um, the second thing is in terms of how we see the world, uh, we look at valuation and we look at whether things are above or below our assessment of fair value. And as we look at that, we see emerging markets offering much better prospects than developed markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third is – this is no time to be invested in speculative investments. Okay. So get rid of your speculative investments if you have any, uh, because the the the, uh, uh, the sunshine and the sunny days that are needed for those speculative investments are gone, uh, and this is a risky time to be uh, speculating speculating on things. Okay, that seems like a reasonable answer. And you spoke of you know shocks that have happened you know throughout the years, and I think one a couple of the biggest ones this year was quite like three major banks needing bailouts and buyouts. Um, so how has the banking crisis affected, you know, the bond market and what should investors be aware of with this? So banks um, that we've heard a lot about in the media uh, are 
um, varying quite a lot in terms of the sort of banks that they are and what it was that got them into trouble. So one of the banks, SVB, uh, was really specialized, very specialized in dealing with organizations that provide capital to startups, venture capital. Mm. Um, It ran into some problems of its own making, uh, which were somewhat came about because interest rates rose a lot, but that's not an unusual phenomenon. So it's really a case of poor management by the bank. The other big high-profile bank that people might have heard about is Credit Suisse. Yeah. Um, you think Swiss banks, you think security, reliability. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that case, it had a long history of managing risk poorly, uh, quite a few scandals, and eventually it was just the end of the road for people being prepared to trust the bank, provide it with capital. Those, Each of those two examples are relatively um, idiosyncratic, um, so driven by circumstances specific to that company. What we can say is that there was a catalyst for both of these things happening. And there's a, one of the sayings attributed um, to Warren Buffett is when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Uh, and the analogy here really is uh, when interest rates go up, it gets tougher for companies that have borrowed money because then they have to – whatever they've done with that cash that they've borrowed, they've got to get a return on that money that's now higher than it was before because they've got to pay that interest rate back. Uh and as you see that happening, whether it's a company who's borrowed money to uh, expand, whether it's a bank, whether it's an individual who's borrowed money to buy a house or speculate, it applies to all of them. And so the real message here isn't the banks, it's the catalyst that is exposing uh, poor risk management, poor practices, and that's rising interest rates. We haven't had interest rates at 4% for ages. So for many companies and for many people, they're just not used to having to deal with that uh, level of of funding. So that's really the key message here. Banks per se are pretty um, different from the from the horrible risk-taking beasts that they were back in 2005, six, and seven, when they were taking excessive risk. They were lending poorly. They had no buffers, and so many of those went bust in the financial crisis. And those that didn't go bust were either bowed out by the government and forced to can be completely different animals after that, much more cautious, or the regulators required banks to completely change their behavior. So banking system today is not like it was before the financial crisis. Uh, it is not on the precipice. Um, of course, banks are entities that um, take people's money and then lend it out. And so when they do that, they take risks in lending it out. Um, and so they are always impacted to some degree or other when you get uh, a rough ride on the economy, um, but then in no way comparable to what happened in the financial crisis. So people shouldn't be thinking, oh my God, I need to pull my money out of um, you know uh, whatever high street bank I'm using because they're going to yeah. go bust. They're not going to go bust. Yeah. You don't need to hide that money under your mattress anytime soon. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so we've all been feeling the pinch, as you've said, you know, with uh, rising inflation. So what would you say has been the impact of inflation on the UK economy? And also, what does this mean for investors? Mm. Well, you know, inflation is generally bad news for everyone. Mm. We're all having to spend more and our income isn't going up by the same amount that uh, all the things we buy have gone up in price. So 
what it really affects most is those on a fixed income mm-hmm. or on a very low income where you've barely got enough to cover your costs. That's where people are really getting impacted heavily. If people um, uh, have an income level where there's still a buffer between the amount they have to spend and the amount they earn, then there is some capacity to deal with that. If they've been able to save some money and stash it away, um, then that also helps them get through this. Uh, the inflation story is is complicated, but really is, in a nutshell, two things. Mm-hmm. Firstly, it's one factor that is fading. Um, and that factor that is fading is is the imbalance between demand and supply that we saw in the COVID crisis when everyone couldn't work, but they were still paid money. And usually when you can't work and you can't go out out the door to do things, all of your spending gets channeled into a smaller number of things, in this case, goods and maybe mucking around with the house. Yeah. Whereas most of our spending is services, but we couldn't spend because we, we weren't able to go out. Yeah. So suddenly you saw demand for those things increased a lot. Because that's where the money was going. But of course, all the factories that make things were shut. And so there wasn't a supply response. And then suddenly you have this massive price increase. Now, there's a lot more to it than that. But in essence, that's what happened. Um, Over time, that's eased, both because factories have gotten back to producing stuff and the Mm -hmm. bottlenecks that existed in the system have eased, as well as people are now spending less money on their things because A, they can spend money on services again because they can get out of the house, but also uh, there's just less money to spend because, as you mentioned, the cost of everything's gone up, um, and so there's less discretionary spending. So that part is fading. That inflationary surge is fading. Um, the other thing that's taken its place somewhat has been the cost of energy, which we all know is pretty high, um, and that has uh, its roots really in the uh, Putin's inv- uh, attempted invasion of the Ukraine, which yeah. has changed the dynamics around the energy markets around the world and has also pushed up the price of food commodities because of the impact on Ukraine, which is a big exporter of wheat and and wheat in a lot of things uh, and other essential food commodities like uh, edible oils. So Mm -hmm. those things are taking longer to feed through for UK households. The impact is, of course, heating our houses where we see it the most because we're reliant to some degree on gas for that. And the gas price got very high on account of the sanctions and what Russia has done. So those things are still high. They're working their way through the system. Um, Our own view is that that too will ease over time. But at Mm -hmm. the moment, that definitely means that people are feeling the pinch. What does it mean for investors? Well, um, actually, because the central banks have been forced to raising rates, it means you now get more money on your savings. Right. So that is an unambiguously good thing. Mm-hmm. Being able to get, you know, three and a half, four percent without taking a lot of risk is a good thing for investors. Um, and it's meant that um, that's a viable place to have money if you need to get your hands on money in the short term and you can't afford to take the risk that you need to take to invest in things like shares and property. Of course, what it's also done is it's pushed up the cost of borrowing, as, as we've discussed. So what it really means is um, if you think about borrowing and you say, well, I've got a certain amount of money, I could use it to spend money, mm-hmm. and whatever I've got left over, I can either use it to invest or pay back my debt. Mm. So if I think about the mass, when I'm paying back my debt and the cost of my debt is zero, then generally most investments will give you a rate of return greater than zero. And so you can make some kind of return. The problem is that that, that whole dynamic changes when the 
um, uh, when your mortgage cost goes up, mm-hmm. and actually all of a sudden your mortgage is costing you whatever it's costing you four, five, six percent. Mm-hmm. And to find an investment that is comparable with no risk and with no cost that gives you the same return is really hard. So when you get the situations happening where your mortgage rate pops up, actually trying to pay the mortgage off can be the best thing you could do because you can't find an investment which is risk-free and cost-free that can give you the same level of return. So that's one thing people should think about. Those who've got debt, whether it's a mortgage, whether it's a loan, and even credit cards. So that becomes quite important, being able to pay to pay that off. Um, so really, you know, those are the more immediate things. Um, one other thing people can bear in mind is the fact that as interest rates have gone up, in terms of what you can earn in the bank, um, there are these things called government bonds where you are lending money to the government and the government pays you a certain interest. And if you want to, before they pay you back, you can – effectively find someone to buy it off you. Mm-hmm. A bit like if you had a car and you sell on the car second your car secondhand to someone else. Except that this is just and uh, you've given your money to the government and they've committed to pay you back interest and pay the money back. And so you can sell that promise the government's made you to somebody else if you want to before the term. So those things in those types of investments, government bonds, you can get a higher return than you could a couple of years ago. Because if they follow somewhat the path of interest rates. So now, safer investments, you can get a better return than you could previously. Uh, and so for people who've got really short-term savings horizons, that's not a bad thing. So, you know, um, government bonds, you know, are, are something that people should consider uh, as well as cash and, and give you a better return. Paying back debt where you can with these higher rates, also a good thing to think about. Okay. Okay. That's a lot of good points. Um, but... I don't know if you have uh, been thinking about this or listening to any of the news around, you know, the evolution of technology right now, you know, with AI seeming to be accessible to pretty much everyone, you know, like even in my team, we're using some AI, just playing around with it mostly. And it's been fun. But um, I wonder what role do you see technology playing in the investment landscape over the next few years? And it's, it's you're right. It's very exciting to have. Um, it's fun, too. There's, yeah. there's fun stuff you can do with it, which is which is pretty cool. Well, um, technology. To, to put this in some kind of context, technology has always been advancing at a certain rate um, and enabling things to be done that previously took longer or more costly or couldn't even be done because no one would how to do it. Mm-hmm. So if you look back over the long history, you know whether it's locomotives um, creating a whole new way of transport, whether it's the creation of electricity, whether it's uh, the computer, um, you've had many – uh, innovations that have sped up uh, the ability to do things, and that is seems to be where we are today. It's picking up again in terms of the rate of change and the extra things that can be done that couldn't be done before. What does that mean? Well, there's a couple of things to think about. Firstly, when we look at investing and we look at companies that are at the forefront of this, with um, as with any company, it's not just what it can do and the potential growth, it's whether the 
other investors have formed a very positive or negative opinion about that. And when people form a very positive opinion and price in fantastic possibilities, mm-hmm. that's when you get a disconnect. And the disconnect is, yes, this technology may be able to deliver marvelous things, but I'm paying a very high price as an investor to own shares in the companies that do this. And if things don't quite go right because the company doesn't execute on its plan, or there's some other technology that emerges that isn't known today, which can compete with this, it can mean that those rosy expectations that are in the price uh, don't get met. And so it ends up being a disappointing investment. To give you some analogies, back in 1999, when we had the last um, period of great euphoria around technology. Yeah. Um, we had great advances of things that you could do on your mobile phone, um, which came to pass not many years later. Um, but all of the companies swept up on that, got priced at such high levels that many of them have fell 70%. Mm. And then the ensuing years, the better ones recovered and, of course, went on to great things. But even things like Apple or Cisco or Microsoft companies, which you know, uh, are large established firms, um, had that same experience. So the price you pay to own these things is very important. And what we've seen is an over enthusiasm for technology, going back over the last twelve to eighteen months, and innovation in general, which ended up making them poor investments, even though the technology was able to fulfill its function and was able to eventually come good. So I think that's one thing to think about. The second is the second round impacts of technology. Great technological advances do one thing. They bring down the cost of producing things. So they're actually quite deflationary. They allow us to produce more with what we've already got um, uh, or indeed be able to lower the cost and so eventually what happens is prices come down. So that's good for everyone because it means that your money goes further and the companies who profit from that aren't just the ones making the the, the uh, technology innovation, the ones who can work out how best to apply it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's certainly exciting. It should ease longer term some of the inflationary pressures, including you know, in some industries it's going to be um, – uh, a game changer in terms of the things that can be done with much lower cost. Fewer people will need to be involved uh, for those. On the other hand, there'll be new industries where people will have jobs created. As I think about, you know, my um, my my thirteen year old, my eleven year old, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna graduate from university. That's what they do um, mm-hmm. with whole new industries and jobs that I can't even begin to imagine. So very exciting. It'll be positive for growth, positive for inflation. But as an investment, you've got to be pretty uh, careful about the price you pay to own these types of things. Right. Yeah. I was thinking about that, you know, like the dot-com bubble. I wasn't very cognizant of it when it happened, but I've heard a lot about it, how excited people were, and then it just burst. And um, yeah, I can imagine, you know, there's so many different, you know, companies coming out and saying that this is what they can do and people will get excited at this new piece of tech that's coming out, but it depends on whether they deliver. And that is quite important. And you have talked about what I would class as diversification um, quite a bit throughout our conversation so far. So I can imagine that you think that um, diversification is quite important for investors. Um, But what strategies would you say 
are the best in order for investors to achieve that. Yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll use a, um, a kind of a, a different analogy here. Um, um, so diversification, you know, there, you could identify investments that you think will give the best return. And we've got a very detailed global process that we go through to assess fair value, see what the price today is, and then find things where the price is well below the fair value, and we should be able to get extra return than we normally get. And we want to get as much return as possible, but we know that the, the more we push in that direction, that we could end up only having a small number of investments, and maybe they're driven by the same factors, so that they all do well or all do badly. Mm-hmm. Um, together. And that means there are going to be certain environments where we could end up not getting a very good outcome. In, in fact, we might get an outcome which is unacceptable to us. So this is where diversification comes in. And it's really about making sure that you've got a outcomes that you can live with and you don't really know what's going to happen in the future. You know, the world uh, is very complex, as we mm-hmm. found out with all the supply chains that unraveled. Yeah. And then secondly, there's a randomness as well about the things that can happen, which can't be forecast. Mm -hmm. Decisions that get made, whether they're political, whether it's climate-related, whether there are knock-on effects, it really isn't possible to forecast these things with any degree of confidence or accuracy. Yeah. And so what diversity – you know, exactly. And and diversification is really about recognizing and having humility and going, look, I don't really know exactly what's going to happen. I can conceive of a variety of scenarios, and I need to be able to know that I can survive those and have decent outcomes for myself. So in some respects, it's like a form of insurance. Mm. Now, with insurance, um, if you try to insure your car, um, for example – or, or, or you've got any other form of insurance, there's usually some payment you have to make. So there's a cost. Mm. And you, the big question you, you've got to ask yourself is, well, is the cost um, too high? And so I'll spend all this money on insurance and it just won't be worth it because there's you're insuring against the likelihood of something happening. And that something happening may be not really that likely. Maybe there's a 10% chance, a 15% chance something will happen. Mm-hmm. But if it happens, there could be a severe outcome. And I need to know that I can survive that. So I've got two choices. I'll either find things which are forms of insurance where the cost isn't too high mm-hmm. and it's still worth my while doing it. Or if there is no insurance that I can see, I just need to. I need to own less of the thing that I'm, that I've got, which is which has given me exposure to this risk. So there's two ways to look at it. Bring it back to simple terms. You know, shares are um, generally the investment which will give you the the growth that you need. And for those who are who are, who are investing long term and looking to save enough money to maybe buy a house or their retirement, or longer term goals, maybe fun fun education needs, shares are the go to asset. They generally will give you the highest return, but you need to have a spread of um, spread of shares in terms of you know different types of companies, different types of industries, different types of countries around the world, so that you're not overly exposed to bad things happening in one company, one industry, one country. So having diversification at that level um, is important. And um, in, for example, in periods where economies fall, uh, economic growth is weak, um, uh, in a crisis, certain industries tend to hold up better because those industries 
the demand for what they're producing is always going to be there. They're essential items. Healthcare is one of those. Uh, utilities is another. Uh, and so in a recession, they're going to hold up better than other industries where, you know, when you find that you've lost your job or your income isn't, isn't growing, you're going to cut back on spending money on those other items, whether it's going out or certain sorts of goods that you'd otherwise buy. So having some exposure to those, uh, you know, safer uh, essential industries is one way to provide diversification in equity portfolios. Then, of course, you know, you want some other assets which will hold up in the environment that's particularly bad for equities. So the kryptonite, if you like, for, for equities is a deep recession. That's when companies have a real risk of going bust. Mm. So you want an asset that can do well in that environment, and government bonds are usually that asset. Government bonds issued by repeatable governments uh, mm. are a better investment. So some mixture of equities and bonds is a safe way to diversify, as well as having some diversity within your equity portfolio. Okay, that makes sense to me. Um, and I think that's something I'll probably be looking into myself. Um, but I know that you're by no means like a fortune teller or anything like that. Although I think your years of experience might help with, you know, my final question, um, which is what is your long term outlook for the UK economy? And um, what would you think the potential impact might be for investors? Yeah, so um, the UK is a really interesting economy stock market because of its, its heritage. Mm. So it's it's got a heritage of being global. Yes. Uh, it's got uh, companies that operate all around the world. It's got a really good legal system that makes it a reliable place. If someone uh, signs a contract and commits to doing things, then usually they will they they will follow through on that. And the laws are reliable. Um, so it's a good place to do business. Um, and it also has a heritage in things like applying technology and commercializing things. So it's got many great things which, along with an educated population, make it you know, inherently uh, a country uh, and a society that can bounce back and adapt. Mm -hmm. So that is something we shouldn't lose sight of. It's been through a tough period for two reasons. One, it took a big hit after the financial crisis because it had – an oversized financial sector, which um, took too much risk. And the adjustment from that hit the growth in the economy, it hit the tax coffers of the government, and uh, that's resulted in slower growth um, than otherwise would have happened. The second is the effect of the, uh, the Brexit in terms of the adjustment that's had to happen with our biggest trading partner, which is the EU. Mm -hmm. So those two effects have slowed growth down, um, uh, and based on what's been happening more of late, it seems that there is um, now uh, going through a different phase where we're coming through coming through both of those things. As the economy is starting to adjust to Brexit, uh, we've had an improvement in the in the in the relationship with Europe um, that's fairly recent. Um, and in fact, you know, President Biden's visit to to, to Northern Ireland is somewhat a reflection of that. Um, and we've had, uh, you know, also I think you know 
uh, a, a broader range of industries that the health sciences have been a fantastic success. Yeah. Um, so there's many great things ab- about the UK that will mean that it will ultimately adapt well. But it's been through a, a, that period of adjustment where um, it will need to continue to adapt itself to that. And what will happen there will depend upon the government that gets elected. Mm-hmm. Um, and the policies that are put in place. Um, uh, and so when you're looking five or 10 years out, it's rather hard to be categoric about that. Um, so I, I think you know, the, the UK does have those advantages. It's probably going to have a better outcome than it has had in the last sort of 10, 15 years. Um, but that somewhat depends upon the policies the government's put in place. The other element, of course, is that the UK is not an island. Well, it is an island <laughs> in one sense, but w- what happens to it is not determined solely by its own actions. Ultimately, right. we're in a world where the actions of the of of the three major trading blocks, the US, China, mm-hmm. and the European Union, will have a very big impact on on the UK. Notwithstanding the fact that it can also trade with other countries, and other regions like that are important, like India. Mm-hmm. So, I think really. Um, you know, uh, the classic economic uh, maths around growth is the number of people you've got working and um, uh, how many hours they work, uh, as well as um, how productive they are. Um, and so the, the the size of the workforce depends on demographics. It depends upon uh, fertility rates. It depends upon immigration um, and it depends on the health of the population in terms of the ability to work. Now, historically, that's increased as life expectancies increased. Weirdly, we've had a situation where the life expectancies actually come off a bit, and that's partly – or hasn't grown to the extent that people were expecting, and that's partly because of of we've had tremendous benefit from medical advances in terms of being able to deal with uh, with the sort of ailments that, that kill people at a fairly um, young age and cripple them. Um, right. And so, so you've had tremendous gains, and it's been difficult to, to to continue to support that same degree of 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 effect um, as you if you kind of picked a low hanging fruit, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that then you know fertility rates have also come off, and fertility rates are kind of aligned to boom and bust. When people feel confident um, about the future and prosperity, they're more mm-hmm. likely to want to have families, mm-hmm. um, and so we haven't had an appearance uh, a period like that, um, and then. On the immigration, it's kind of waxed and waned, um, uh, but actually still relatively high. So those things um, suggest that it's really going to be productivity, doing things more effectively. What you mentioned earlier, Kimberly, with with uh, innovation technology is really important. The ability to apply those things, um, and so you know, again, the UK has a has a track record of doing those things. So I think those things are all positive. What does it mean for investors? Well. The UK stock market is really pretty global. You know, most of the earnings of companies are sourced outside the UK. So a lot less than you might think. It's only some of the smaller companies where it's a bit more oriented. So I think globally will really dictate those things. Um, the real estate markets, commercial real estate, is somewhat the same because it's companies who are, who are using um, land to, to do things and buildings on them to do things. And many of those are, are global companies. Um, housing may be more of an impact there because that's a bit more localized. Um, but even there, the shortage of, 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 of new housing compared to demand means mm-hmm. there hasn't really been anything of a game changer there on the supply side. Right. 
And so you haven't had, so you still have a sort of supply and demand and balance, which is more focused on the areas where jobs are being created, um, which is really, you know, a, a typified by London. So I think there's nothing particularly I could say that would add to those things in the long run. Uh, so yeah, the bottom line really is it's been through, you guys have been through a tough period. It feels like it's coming out of that. There are some positives in the longer term and potential it has. Um, the stock market is less really driven by those things. And so for most people, it won't really directly impact them. Uh, it might you know, impact them uh, more through other types of investments like housing, which at the moment is sort of coming off a peak where house prices went up a lot uh, yeah. uh, in, 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 in response to uh, – uh, you know the the cheap money and the moves that, that happened around COVID, and so we're seeing some comeback of that as mortgage rates go up, and affordability comes down. Um, but in the long run, yeah, you know, the the, ha- the housing demand supply imbalance hasn't really changed, um, and so you know it'd be hard to to really see things being fundamentally different. Maybe house prices grow at a slower rate uh, or stagnate for a while, but yeah, you know, that dynamic still seems to be in play. Okay, well that seems like uh, quite a positive outlook um and you know something that i like to hear personally um but it was really great speaking with you today mike thank you so much for talking to me kimberly no it's an absolute pleasure um you know and i, and I think it just it helps people so much uh, to have podcasts like yours just trying to break things down and provide information so hopefully today's been been uh, also helpful for that uh, but good luck to everyone who's listening who's who's a saver and an investor thank you so much my pleasure Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time.